0: Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast.
1: Lucky number 13.
0: Well, so they say.
1: So thank you for joining us for episode number 13. This is another one of our future recorded, pre-recorded episodes because Mark's on holiday still. So no thank yous or shout outs, so we'll just get straight into the case. In a road known as Tinpan Alley in 1980, there was the worst fire in the UK since the Blitz. It was classed as the worst mass murder in Britain up to that date, and that was until Harold Shipman. The fire was more deadly than the famous King's Cross fire seven years later, and it even took the lives of more people than the Great Fire of London. So this is an event I'm really interested in. It's a part of our history that most people are taught about in school. Most people will at least know the name of this. And just six people actually died in that fire. The fire I'm going to tell you about today claimed the lives of 37 victims.
0: That is just crazy that only six people died in the Great Fire of London. I'm really surprised at that. So that really sets some context for, well, what is really a mass murder that we're covering today.
1: Yeah, and considering that the fire was set intentionally by a person absolutely whereas uh, the great fire of london was an accidental fire this actually was set by someone who meant to set a fire however it's been largely forgotten from public memory this is due to a mix of the circumstances leading up to the fire and the people involved and then also due to certain events that occurred around the same time and just after and it really shocks me that it's so unknown there wasn't even a wikipedia page until a couple of years ago the names of the victims have only recently been released. One of the facts that I read is that the 37 lives taken by the person who set this fire on that one night is greater than the lives taken by the killers Jack the Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, John Christie and the Moors murderers combined. And yet the story's largely forgotten. It's absolutely shocking. When I started putting like a list together of cases I wanted to cover this for this podcast... I hadn't heard of this case either and later I'm going to tell you a bit more about the reasons why it's faded from public memory. But yeah, I just find it really sad and I think it's quite nice that we can at least sort of honour the victims of this tragedy a little bit by remembering them. So the fire happened in two clubs that we're going to be discussing and these were in Denmark Street and Denmark Place in London. They were unlicensed club in the attic sort of parts of a three-story townhouse, so like the top two floors. It was a really exclusive club, so only certain people were let in, and if you were someone who was allowed to go to the club that you knew about the club, because it was illegal, um, you'd shout up from the street to be let in, and if they were happy that you could come in, they'd chuck a key down to you that would open the front door. You would let yourself in, lock the door behind you, and then climb up the stairs, which were made of wood, onto a landing. At the landing, there was one club, and then up a fire escape, which was covered in yet more wood, there was the other club. Because it was illegal, the windows and doors were boarded up and locked at all times to hide what was going on inside, and as I'm sure you're guessing, the amount of wood all over this building is really key.
0: So we've seen this before, as you said, with the King's Cross station. That was a massive fire because there was so much wood, and the even the escalators were made of wood, and obviously the escalators go up, so you know the flames rise towards the top and it was just catastrophic so i suppose you've got a very similar situation here
1: and even in really recent history grenfell covered in wooden cladding or whatever it was they were covered in the building was covered in It's just, yeah, it's just shocking really and it was an accident waiting to happen. So the Denmark Street and Denmark Place area used to be really known as a cool place to hang out. So people like David Bowie were were there when they were making music. Some people like the Sex Pistols, the Who, Jimi Hendrix, the Kinks, Elton John, many, many more. And it was a really key part of the music scene in the 60s and 70s. By the 80s it was just a little bit run down and it wasn't as glamorous and the area was more known for gambling dens and illegal bars. The clubs in number 18 drew people in on a nightly basis who wanted to listen to music, dance, chat to their friends and who could go in and drink anonymously. I've read that people have said of the clubs that you were who you wanted to be. You were called whatever you said your name was and especially in these times before social media that would have been quite easy. The two clubs were in one main building that I've mentioned and this was number 18, Denmark Place. One club was called the Spanish Rooms and was usually filled with locals, Irish people and Jamaican immigrants. The other club was called Rodos, otherwise known as Dandy, and this was a salsa club which was really popular with Spanish or Latin American immigrants. At the time there were loads of people who came to England to work on three-year visas and it was part of a drive to encourage more people to come and work here. ...that was led by the UK's Department of Employment. Some people have stated that a lot of the patrons were in the country illegally. But there's also people who say categorically this is not true... ...and it's always going to be impossible to know for sure. The clubs were run under the radar of the police, the fire department or the council. They didn't include smoke alarms or sprinklers... ...and the owner really didn't adhere to any regulations around buildings or running a club... Got the impression doing my research that the police would shut these clubs down on quite a regular basis. So the name of the club would change, maybe they'd move to a new premises, and the fun would continue until the police found out about them again. At the time of our story today, the police were planning to do that, just that. At this point in August 1980, the councillor told the management that the clubs are going to be shut down on Monday, and so they planned over the weekend to have a big farewell party. It was Saturday the 16th of August where our story begins this week. The rooms were packed with people dancing, singing and having a good time and it was a hot summer's night so the rooms were sweaty. I imagine the atmosphere for anyone who's not claustrophobic would have been amazing. For obvious reasons there were no complete records of how many people were there but apparently it was close to 150 people across the three floors and the two clubs on that Saturday night. Everybody wanted to go and say goodbye to what was their favourite place to go drink in. A man named John Thompson, otherwise known as Gypsy or Punch, had been drinking in the Spanish rooms for hours and by 2am he was wasted. He had lost a lot of money from gambling, playing the slot machines and drinking and he was just generally in a bad mood. He was known as a bit of an angry drunk. He was handy with his fists, that's why he was called Punch as a nickname, and he had prior arrests for drug dealing, assault and arson. On this particular night, he started arguments with people and the main person he was kicking off at was the barman, who was Jose Franco. He tried to say that he was overcharging him for drinks. He then got really angry and tried to punch, him fr- uh, punch Franco and kick him. So along with Thompson shouting racial slurs and just general angry drunk man shouting, he was forcefully removed from the club. Everybody inside shared a bit of a laugh at the altercation and they all cheered as the door was locked behind the drunk Thompson and then they continued with their noisy farewell partying. Thompson, however, wasted and full of rage, found a petrol can on the ground outside the club and formed his drunken revenge plan. He took a taxi to a nearby petrol station where he filled the can with two gallons of fuel and then he headed back to the club's. Witnesses afterwards have talked about seeing a drunk man crouching in the darkness of the doorway but they had no idea what he was doing and shockingly he was pouring the petrol in through the letterbox of the locked front door. He chucked a lit piece of paper in afterwards and without thought to call the fire brigade or alert anyone, Thompson fled the scene. The fire caught hold super fast, it soared up the walls and the stairs and I've read that the floors were wooden beams The ceilings were wooden beams, the stairs were made of wood and the walls were pretty much all covered in plasterboard. The bar was one long narrow room which had loads of wooden benches lining it and there was just one door that acted as entrance and exit. It was noisy, hot and sweaty. The smell of cigarette smoke, because obviously people were smoking indoors then, hid the smell of fire and the music would have hidden any sort of noise of a fire taking hold. There's a really good podcast episode about this case by a podcast called Murder Mile and they did an amazing job of setting the scene at this point because they had fire sounds behind the narrator while they were describing what was going on and it gave me absolute chills to sort of hear that crackling in the background. It's absolutely terrifying to imagine how the club patrons had no idea what was coming for them. Lubin Rees heard a noise and he went to investigate, and when he opened the door to check what was going on outside, he was greeted by an absolute firestorm. The doors were all so hot that he couldn't even touch them, let alone open them, and the noise that he'd heard was an explosion. Stored in the basement of the house, there were 30 hot dog carts, and the owner of the club had a side business selling hot dogs around London, and the carts that he had stored on the ground floor had propane tanks inside. Flames and superheated gases rose up and a fireball engulfed the top floors of the building. The Soho Fire Brigade were based less than a mile away. The team was sat there that night as they would normally be at sort of two, three o'clock in the morning. They were sharing stories and chatting amongst themselves and then they got a call to go to a fire at Denmark Close. They knew that this place didn't exist so they called the control room to clarify whether this was a real call or not, whether it was a hoax or what was going on. And whilst they were waiting for confirmation, a member of the public ran in shouting, there's a fire in Denmark Place. So they knew that this was really, this was actually going on. The fire brigade arrived and assumed that they had been sent to a rubbish fire because the street was really quiet and dark and it wasn't the sort of place that you'd expect people to be at that time. But then a person came running out shouting, there's hundreds of people inside. The firemen got closer and they heard screaming from above. The fire trucks couldn't enter the alley because it was blocked off with bollards, so the firemen took the hoses into the road by hand and other officers attempted to open the front door. They were showered in sparks and flames and had to retreat at first. When they finally got the door open, they could see that the stairs in front of them were fully ablaze and they called for more fire engines with more hoses to be sent out. In total, there were six fire engines used to attack this fire. The fire brigade used a turntable ladder to survey the fire from above, at which point they could tell just how serious it was, and the division commander even made his way to the scene. He very quickly advised that the police needed to investigate what was clearly arson, because the smell of petrol was just so strong. Next door to the clubs was a record shop, and this was locked up for the night, and inside there were people who'd managed to escape the club, but had found themselves trapped once again behind the metal shutters.
0: Fucking hell, that is so me, that would be just what i would do i would escape a massive fire congratulate myself and then realize i'm still fucking trapped
1: one guy was actually wielding a guitar as an axe trying to smash the metal shutters down the people inside the shop spoke of how they'd managed to get out through a kitchenette but said they'd had to climb over people to get out the firemen were actually able to rescue six people inside the shop when they got the shutters off but a sad fact is that one of them reported this was the last time in the fire that he saw anyone alive. Patrons trapped upstairs in the building began ripping the shutters off the windows and breaking the glass with their bare hands. They then threw themselves out onto the pavement below. Some of them had clothing that was still on fire, and it was just clearly better to risk the broken bones than to stay in the absolute inferno above. One pair who were reported to have jumped in this way was a woman called Elizabeth Mercado, and her friend Eduardo Trujillo. I don't know if I said that right. They had been celebrating together before her return to Colombia. Luckily, they survived. Official reports have said that 50 people escaped in total, with 23 of these being treated for serious injuries, but many other people left quietly and secretly, not wanting for whatever reason to be registered as a part of the scene. Whether this is because they were in the country illegally or just because the club itself wasn't legal, I don't know. But it does make the reports of the night really varied. Nobody wanted to talk to the firemen, the ambulance staff or the police at the scene. The DJ, Hanan Vergas, he died attempting to rescue his prize records that were stored in the attic. And the barman who'd kicked Thompson out, Jose Franco, was killed trying to escort patrons out of the burning building. A young man named Alex returned to the fire to try and rescue a pregnant woman, but sadly the two of them died in the fire. So the fire took two hours to put out, and so three hours after they first arrived at the scene, the firemen and the fire scene photographers were able to enter the building. They described the black, damp building with plastic dripping from the ceiling, and walls and door frames that had been buckled from the heat. Bodies were piled up where they had died, trying to flee or clawing at the boarded shut windows, and others had died where they stood or sat, and some still had drinks in their hands.
0: I have to say, I think if I was going to go in that way, I would rather go quickly with a drink in my hand.
1: Yeah, because at least you don't realise what's going on until it's too late. One fireman was quoted in the Observer newspaper a few days later as saying, I have seen worse fire damage, but never bodies packed together like that.
0: I think I've heard of similar cases where there's been sort of like a a mass panic and people are desperate to get out it's just so common isn't it this sort of every man for himself i think it's an instinct that kicks in people uh, will literally trample over people and generally more people die as a result of being trampled on than from the actual event itself such as a fire
1: yeah they're always saying you know go calmly because then you'll actually get out if you will walk calmly rather than trying to run. Um so the owner and the club promoter were arrested, but neither of them were charged, and soon afterwards they both vanished. In the newspaper The Times, shortly after the fire, they reported saying, if this was arson, it was Britain's worst act of mass murder. But aside from some articles in The Times, The Observer and The Glasgow Herald, there was very little press coverage of the fire. Within days, the public began to forget what had happened on the 16th of August in Denmark Place. And within years, it faded from public memory.
0: That's just so fucking weird. Why was that not front page for weeks and weeks? And why do we not know about this? It's just so weird.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm going to go into it in a bit more detail. And it is, it's just shocking. So the taxi driver who had taken Thompson to the petrol station and the staff member from the petrol station who'd served him were both able to give the police his description. Thompson was found nine days after the fire whilst having a drink in a local pub and he was arrested. He admitted to starting the fire, but he continued to claim that he hadn't meant to kill anyone. His excuse was he was angry and drunk. Not really an excuse. He still tried to say that it was the barman who had died. It was his fault because he'd overcharged him for a drink. When he faced the charges in court on the 29th of August, he pleaded not guilty to murder, saying, I didn't know that the fire would go all the way up the building. It took four pathologists and three dentists two whole months to identify all of the bodies. The people were from eight different countries. The full list of names of the people who died in the fire is now available, but this wasn't confirmed until 2015.
0: God, that's horrendous for the families of those victims. These people would have just disappeared as far as they were concerned. And fortunately, now they do have answers, but 35 years to know what had happened to... A family or a friend.
1: And that's exactly it. I've read um quotes from people who have said they will never know for definite what happened to their family member. So the people who died in this fire in the Denmark place were in alphabetical order. Sylvia Aguire, Alvaro Bararos, Pamela Boff, Bedrin Bulati, Archibald Campbell, Leonard Carroll, Diana Coward, Clancy Decran, Maria Dick, Peter Dolan, Paul Ferrillo, Jose Franco, Carol Gori, Maria Gumiel, Teresa Gumiel, Denise Hananigan, Christina Isherwood, Luz Londono, Avril McDermott, Diana McIlvanney, Gloria Munoz, Anita Murray, Antonio Navarro, Bridget Norton, Julian Ortega Garce, Seg Putahu, William Ramsey, Alexander Reed. Juan Sagasta Houdan, Edgar Smith, Carlos Soto, Robert Sertun, Eustace Taylor Harding, Alejandro Vargas, Hernan Vargas, Beatrice Vargas Corrales, and Frederick Yule now what I find most shocking is after reading out so many names that is a long list of names which I'm really sorry if I've butchered how you pronounce any of them but I felt it was really important to say all their names after all of those people were killed in this fire Thompson was technically convicted for one single count of murder and that was of Archibald Campbell Thompson was found guilty on a specimen charge which is one that incorporates multiple charges apparently it was easier that way
0: and if you do if you look at things like Grenfell which obviously nobody was necessarily responsible i know there's you know potentially corporate manslaughter there but there was a massive inquiry um you know huge news and something like this there should have been an inquiry
1: from what i can understand this was because investigations would have just been so difficult tracking down witnesses from the club could be almost impossible and okay this is really hard but it just seems like a really shitty decision to me The worst sentence that he could be given at the time, because there wasn't the death penalty, was life in prison. And so on the 7th of May the following year, this is what he was sentenced to. His prison sentence of 30 years didn't even equate to one year per person killed. Thompson died in prison in 2008 of lung cancer. And coincidentally, he actually died on the anniversary of the fire. But he died unremembered and unremarkable in prison. Until the recent Grenfell Tower fire, which we've mentioned a couple of times, which claimed the lives of 70 people, this fire was the worst post-war fatal fire in the UK. So, as we've discussed a couple of times, why was this fire barely reported on in the days after the tragedy? Why has it been so easily forgotten? And why was Thompson's trial and conviction one that warranted little more than a few inches of newspaper column? Well, firstly, the reports of the fire straight after the event were few and far between. People who were at the club that night didn't want to speak to investigators. Mr. Withington, who wrote a book called London's Disasters, which he featured this fire in, said journalists need a human interest aspect to be able to keep a story going. And with no one willing to talk, there just wasn't any sort of human interest section to this story. The papers also wrongly believed at first that the fire was due to either a rival drug gang sort of issue, rival hot dog vendors... ...or that it was a grudge or revenge killing due to South American politics... ...so it wasn't something that really interested the UK population. They got this wrong, but obviously in the days straight afterwards... ...that's what they thought it all was. There was barely any investigation into the clubs... ...and the fact that they hadn't followed regulations and codes... ...because they were going to be shut down anyway and it was just easier. Seven years later, following the King's Crossfire... ...huge investigations were undertaken... But this was because it was a public place. There's a plaque to honour the people who died in the fire in London Underground, but no plaque has ever been put up for the victims of the Denmark Place fire. Another aspect to this case is the disparity between victim types. So no one can ignore that some victims are more, in inverted commas, worthy of our sympathy or it upsets people more than others. We see it time and time again, a pretty blonde woman going missing will garner a lot more compassion than a prostitute, for example, cute blonde kid from a rich family will get a lot more media attention than one from a poor family or from a minority background. But aside from this, two other major parts of UK true crime history took place at the same time. At the time that John Thompson drunkenly set the fire, Dennis Nilsen killed William Sutherland. Dennis Nilsen was a Scottish serial killer who killed at least 12 young men between the years of 1978 and 1983 in London. He worked in a call centre close to Denmark Place and in 1983 he was sentenced to life imprisonment after being convicted of six counts of murder and two attempted murders. He's someone I'd be interested in covering in a future episode.
0: Definitely and I've got a bit of a list on the go. I think we both do our our own lists of people that we want to cover and for some reason I've not... I do know of the case and not really thought about covering that one. But yeah, I think that'd be a good one to do. That was back in the 80s, um, probably quite well documented at the time, as you've said, well
1: covered. And then at the same time as Thompson's court case, his trial and his conviction, Peter Sutcliffe was on trial. So this is in 1981. Peter Sutcliffe's story was the one that grabbed the headlines. While Thompson was being tried and convicted, Sutcliffe was being tried next door to him. And the press were queuing to get into that courtroom. Nobody was even paying any attention to the person being convicted for the crime of the fire being set. And 15 days after Thompson was convicted, Sutcliffe was convicted too. This was definitely the bigger case for the media. So isn't that absolutely shocking that because of the types of victims that were involved, because of what was going on in the the city around the same time, nobody remembers this fire, nobody remembers those victims.
0: I honestly think because of the ethnicities of the majority of the people in that club it does seem that the police just didn't care and we have seen that again um, with other crimes, certainly around that time, the 80s and you know, the police is very different now but it does make you think, is it because of that?
1: Absolutely, so there was eight different nationalities of people who died in that fire, it was 37 people including an unborn baby and yet It wasn't remembered. Within days, it was out of the media and it was out of the public knowledge. And the place now has been demolished as part of the Crossrail development. So there's not even anywhere now that anybody could try to sort of memorialise it. We now have social media. We now have the internet. So people can talk a lot more and they can investigate a lot more. There's a plaque nearby for the person who invented the diving helmet. And there's no plaque anywhere to memorialise the people that died in that fire.
0: Maybe in covering a case like this so I'm not saying we're a massive podcast or anything <laughs> but I think in you know covering this reading out the, the names of the victims that does in some tiny way show some respect to them and commemorate their memory.
1: Definitely and that's really why I wanted to cover this case I wanted to make sure that they are not forgotten and hopefully this case then has been brought to the attention of some more people
0: so a bit of a different case for us this week compared to some of the others we've covered but uh, nevertheless a really interesting one and once again we'd be really interested to know your thoughts so please don't hesitate to get in touch with us on all of the social media platforms for the more traditional amongst you you can email us at info at seeingredpodcast.com. Don't be afraid to get in touch.
1: I'm pretty sure it's uk.
0: Just as I was saying it, I thought it was <laughs> Um
1: So obviously come join us on Facebook. We've got our discussion thread. Come join us on Instagram and Twitter as well. And please just let us know what your thoughts are around the case we'll be back with you next week which is halloween on the day that we release our podcast which is very exciting we're going to do a slightly different episode next week where we're each going to take it in turns in the one episode to tell you a story that has some sort of halloween link hope you're excited for that
0: until next time we'll see you then
1: bye